I know it is an odd opening for a series that's in the Gospel of Mark for me to say this, but if you have your Bible with you or you have it on your device, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew chapter 19. I've made the joke before that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke communicate more like ladies do. There's lots of details. You start wondering if you actually need all those details. And the Gospel of Mark communicates like a guy. It's just the, the facts and you move on. And for this topic today, Matthew's account of the same story. So if we were over in Mark 10, we'd be reading the same story as this. Matthew's account just offers some more information. It offers a, a more complete uh, relaying of the conversation. So we're going to read that now. Uh, we'll pray and we'll dive in here with uh, what's going to be in the Gospel of Mark series, but it's the uh, Gospel of Matthew chap chapter 19 is where we're going to read the first 12 verses. The Word of God says this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and Jesus healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, and to send her away? Well, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Because of your, the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But let the one who is able to receive it, to receive this, receive it. Let's pray over the preaching of God's word. Lord, this morning the, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is sufficient. I ask that you would help me a flawed a flawed pathway, a flawed speaker of this truth uh, to be empowered, Holy Spirit empowered, to speak the truth, to minister to hearts, to convict. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do your work. I can't. All I could do is give, the, give this truth out. And Lord, I ask that you would do the rest. Let your word not return void. Maybe this time around the preaching of God's word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was June of 2001 that Shane Powell Sr., he's dad, had me teach for the first time a elementary school boys Sunday school class. In this room, it was actually Shakai's little brother, Shaquan, was in that class. I think it was Sh Shannon's nephew, Brent, was in that class. A couple other kids, and I'm sure I did not do a great job. But 20 years later, in June of 2021, for the first time in 20 years of teaching, I came across a passage that requires of me to talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. 
maybe he did know what he's doing. The Lord knew what he was doing to hold me all the way till then to talk about these topics. Before we get into it, I have a bit of a preamble. Give me 10 minutes to set this up for us. The Gospel of Mark, what we have been studying, in, in, in this case, the Gospel of Matthew, there is a firm question that before we talk about these topics, we've got to go back and make sure we answer it. The Gospel of Mark's main question is, who is Jesus? He demands of you, make a decision about who this guy is. And we just got that settled in the Gospel of Mark. He went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was glorified. He emanated glory. He met with the law and the prophets. And Peter was even saying, let's build, temp- let's build tents for you, t- tabernacles to you. We found out who Jesus is. God said, this is my son. Listen to what he says. And so the gospel of Mark has already demanded of you, make a decision about Jesus. And then it's been declared. Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. Therefore, whatever he teaches, we just submit to it. It's been demanded of us. Who is he? He's Christ. He's the Son of God. So whatever he teaches us, we just humbly submit to our Maker. And I mention that today because some of what you hear will offend your modern sensibilities. All of our minds have been discipled by a very secular culture. And it creates your instincts that when you hear some things Jesus say, you'll go, I don't like that. Jesus will respond to your instincts today. And if you don't remember from the start the key to the Gospel of Matthew, who he is, you'll start arguing with your God. And you're always wrong when you do that. So remember who Jesus is. Number two, we're talking today about three things, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Some of these are hard to talk about. Marriage, not as hard, but it it does have its challenges. I think it's hard to talk about in part because as you've been discipled by your secular culture, you have been told stories about marriage. You've been told what to believe about it. And I don't know that you've been told a lot of wrong stories, but you have been told incomplete stories. You've been told marriage is your grand love story. And it is. You've been told marriage is an achievement to show that you've moved on in life. It's your rite of passage to show that you're a man and you're going to have a legacy. Some social scientists will talk about it as a cultural building block. It's how we raise kids and build neighborhoods and societies. And is it all those things? Sure. But is it just those things? You've seen marriage in your culture discarded by easy, widespread divorce and the muddying of its definition. That's the story you've been told. But Jesus is going to have a different story today about marriage. So let me start with this question. I wonder if you can ruminate on it. What if you're wrong about marriage? What if you have a woefully incomplete view? What if you're not wrong, you just have an incomplete view of marriage? What if you already think you think of marriage highly, but it's not quite highly enough? What if marriage is not just your love story and just your achievement and just your cultural cohesion? What if it's something much more cosmic? So we'll talk about marriage today. We're going to talk about divorce. Almost everyone in this room has felt the wreckage of divorce. If you haven't been through one yourself, you... Maybe you grew up in a household affected by one in a blended family or single-parent home. You have felt the pain that comes from divorces. There's some social science that shows that divorce pain is often more intense and longer-lasting than widowed pain emotionally. Divorce just comes with, we find, a different kind of fear, some guilt, some sadness and anxiety and some loneliness. We know in this room, whether you've been through one or you're in, you were a child of one of those households, it's a deeply painful experience, and so it's hard to talk about. And then we're going to talk about remarriage. Admittedly, 
Jesus' teaching on this, what he just said, seems antiquated. And it will seem alien to you. It might even seem harsh that Jesus teaches what he teaches. And it's important then to ask the question, is something wrong with Jesus or might something be wrong with you? It's it's worth asking, why do I feel this way? Well, it might be because as we talked about at the beginning, that you might have a very incomplete and worldly discipled view of what marriage is. When we have marriage as only the pinnacle of romance or the rite of passage in life that is a fully human institution, Jesus' teaching will seem weird to you if that's what you think marriage is. But I, I end this preamble with that question. But what if marriage is something altogether different? What if it's so much more than you think? And those are all the things that we'll wrestle with today. So let's get to work. Verses 1 through 3, once again, in Matthew chapter 19. Here we go. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed the crowds there. And the Pharisees came up to him. They tested Jesus by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Let's stop here for a second. Of course, we know the Pharisees are often set up as the antagonist in the story. And so we know they're asking this question with ill intent towards Jesus. They want to trip him up. But there was a controversy of the time. It's not an irrelevant question. The religious leaders were debating a law in Deuteronomy that allowed for divorce. And there were some people arguing You can divorce for basically any reason, and there were some arguing that it's only for sexual immorality inside marriage and fidelity, and they want Jesus to weigh in on the debate. But while they had ill intent, they're asking this question to try to trip him up. I found myself reading this and wanting to give them some credit because they at least asked the question. They at least asked the question, is it lawful to divorce one's spouse? Our culture decided about 40 years ago with a resounding yes. We we don't even ask the question anymore. Is it lawful to divorce one spouse? Our culture says, yeah, do that. For basically any reason. If you found someone else, you don't feel the fulfillment you once did, the money runs out, the sickness happens because you, quote, married the wrong person, whatever the reason is, our culture said, yeah, get divorced, do that. I found, because I started studying for this and I was Googling things, that Google figured out I was thinking about divorce. And so my Google ads started popping up with cheap divorce. Get it done for a couple hundred dollars. And you can, we can do it in the afternoon. We've made a cheap industry out of divorce. So at least with the Pharisees, can I give them some credit? They asked the question. We don't even ask the question anymore. So let's see how Jesus responds. They ask, is it lawful to divorce your spouse? He answered, have you not read? He goes to Genesis here. Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, he who made them said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus answers here like he often does with scripture. Can I stop on that real quick? What a great instinct to have. Every time we get asked a cultural question, let us be the people that our instinct, our immediate question is, what's the Bible say? When we get asked a question about marriage, divorce, sexuality, parenting, discipline, no matter the topic, let us be a people. Lord, let us be a people that immediately have our instinct go, what's the Bible say? 
Not what does my favorite blogger say. Not even what does my favorite preacher say. Not even what does my pastor say. Immediately the instinct say, what does the Bible say about that? And that's what Jesus' instinct was. He gets asked a question, is it lawful to divorce your spouse? And he says, well, let's go to Genesis. Let's look at the original design for marriage. I'm going to answer you with Scripture that the original design is, if God is joined together, don't let anybody tear them apart. We're going to talk about that response from Genesis towards the end of the sermon, but I do want to highlight a couple things here. He, he says here, he who created them. He, he who created humanity. So he's using the authority of God on definitions. He is saying God has ownership in the design rights over men, women, humanity, and marriage. Amen. Meaning, when you marry, you enter into something God made. In the same way that the designer of the car knows what fuel to put in it, the same way the architect is really the only one that knows what walls can be removed from a building, the same way that the drug maker is really the one that knows what the dose should be for your body weight, in the same way, God knows what marriage is for. When you get into marriage, you get into something he made. And he made it for male and female, life, long, and any other use of marriage outside of God's design is disordered. This means that not only, this is an important distinction, this means that not only does God know what is best for humanity, he does what's for best for flourishing, for our happiness and our joy, but he knows what is right for humanity. Not just best, but right. He made male and female. He made marriage. And as a totally theological statement, he made them male and female for this union. He made them male and female for this union together. Every other design is a human design, and it will not work. So it's he created them. It's his institution, marriage. He made them male and female, and he says, we're going to talk about this a lot more later. It's profound, really, that they are made one flesh. It's said twice in that Genesis passage. And in Hebrew literature, when you say something twice, you're saying, hey, listen up. I want you to understand this. They become one flesh. That's not how we think about marriage today. For modern day, marriage is an accessory that you add on to an already completed life. The social scientists call it capstone marriage. That you go ahead and live your life, you create who you are, and after you've done that, you add someone onto it. And so two independent entities come together and decide to live life together, almost like a business decision. But not coming together as one. It's one of the reasons it's so easy to switch spouse for spouse, because marriage is an accessory to life instead of two becoming one in our culture. That's not how God designed it. Marriage is two becoming one. So why I suspect why divorce is so painful. A body is being torn apart in marriage. In divorce. Divorce is tearing a body apart. How painful it must be. So Jesus' argument is this. They ask him, is it lawful for a spouse to divorce a spouse for any reason? And Jesus says, God made marriage for men and women. And what God has brought together, let no one separate by divorce. So then how do the Pharisees respond? Verse 7. Pharisees said to Jesus, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? This is a fair question. The Pharisees are going to Deuteronomy here, and they think they have Jesus in a very tough spot. Because Jesus is saying, don't divorce. They're saying, well, Moses, probably the most highly venerated person in our faith... He gave a, a process for divorce, and so you're, I'm putting you up against Moses. What are you going to do there? 
Deuteronomy, by the way, there is a process for divorce that we already saw Jesus said was created because of the hardness of their hearts. It was primarily created for the protection of women, to protect them from allegations of adultery and their if they get married again. It also creates a protection that a man cannot divorce a woman, take her back, divorce her, take her back, divorce her, take her back, like she's, a, like she's not a human. So they have an interesting argument. Well, why, why then did Moses allow it? So let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning that was not so. So Jesus goes back to the ideal. He doesn't stay with their story. They're telling him their story about marriage. Our story about marriage is that it happens, it's hard, divorce happens, we know it's going to happen, so how do we deal with it? He goes back and says, oh, I'm going to tell you my story about marriage. My story, the God's story, the Jesus story about marriage is the Genesis story. He goes back, back to it. He's making a very clever argument. He's saying, oh, you're quoting Moses at me? You're quoting Deuteronomy at me? Moses wrote Genesis too, guys. He also wrote that. He wrote the ideal, and then he wrote that he made an exception to the ideal because of your hardness of heart. So with clarity, Jesus is saying God's design is for marriage to be one man and one woman for all of earthly time. Moses made the exception because of your flawed hearts, but it's not God's desire. It's not God's design. And we could stop here at verse 8. I can't tell you how much I want to stop here at verse 8. But Jesus didn't stop, and so I can't stop he applied the lesson. He just gave the lesson. God designed marriage for one man, one woman, for all of earthly time, so don't divorce. But people do divorce. So what then? Well, Jesus applies his lesson in verse 9. And I say to you. He didn't have to add the and, but he did it. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. That is heavy. It's disturbing. And I imagine when he said it, it was stone cold silence and mouths agape. It feels like another thing he did on the Sermon on the Mount all the time. Guys, if you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, it's hard to hear. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, if you've got hate in your heart, you're already a murderer. I tell you, you've heard, it, don't, you've heard don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you've got lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And to hear, if you divorce your spouse for another reason, besides sexual immorality, and there's even some debate about that one that we need to clarify, and you marry somebody else, you've committed adultery. Just, whoa, feel the weight of it. I'm going to come back to this over and over again, but it takes understanding that marriage isn't just your love story. It isn't just a social convention. If you understand what marriage really is, it's going to feel less hard to hear. And if Jesus is saying this, if he is saying divorcing a spouse for another reason besides adultery and marrying another is adultery, man, marriage must be something that I don't really get. Marriage must be something profound if that's what he's saying. And I know that there's an, there's an instinct here to try to explain away what he said, but he, he said what he meant. So this emanates also directly from Genesis. He's quoting Genesis the entire time. Marriage is such a magnified union when God brings you together, it cannot be undone. You can legally divorce, but Jesus is saying that in the eyes of God, you are married. Pursue the reconciliation of your marriage. And if you are not pursuing the reconciliation of that marriage, then just live unmarried. He is saying that. This is, of course, very challenging to hear. 
And the disciples say so in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Listen, guys, I don't know how my tone is coming across on this, but it's not comfortable to say. The disciples feel like I feel. So blown away by this. They're so blown away by it, they conclude, if marriage is that, if it is lifelong commitment, no exceptions, I just want to avoid that one altogether. What they're feeling is the weight, the holiness of what it is to marry somebody. So how does Jesus then respond? Uh, Let me recap the entire conversation and I want to get Jesus' response. He said, the Pharisees come and say, hey, is it lawful to divorce your spouse for any reason? Jesus says, "Uh, if you look back to Genesis, the design is one man, one woman for life. Okay, well, Jesus, why did Moses allow it? Well, he allowed it because you're of the hardness of your heart. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And I tell you, if you are divorcing your wife or or divorcing your spouse and marrying another, you're living in adultery. And the disciples say, well, we shouldn't get married at all. In verse 11, Jesus finishes up by saying, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying. Duh. I read that. Yeah, I know. Not everyone can receive this saying. But only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. He mentions eunuchs here as people who are physically don't have the capacity for marriage. So singleness is not a choice for them. It's, it's a way of life, so they, they can't be married. He's responding by saying, yeah, this kind of lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, that will need to be Holy Spirit-empowered. Those who have the Holy Spirit empowering them to do that, yeah, that's, that's how marriage is going to happen. So this brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? What do we do with all this? In this room, maybe the room around Jesus when he says this, folks ask, what about my marriage? I've been divorced. I'm currently married. Maybe you're in here and you say, I am divorced. I'm also single. What should I do? You say in here, we got young people coming up. Teenagers listen to me. Teenagers listen to me. It happens faster than you think. I'm single and I want to be married. What should I know? And there's a lot, of you, a lot of you in here. I love this. You are married. You want to stay married. What do you need to know? We're going to answer all those. But unless we understand my thesis statement, unless you understand what marriage actually is, none of my answers will make any sense to you. So we need to make sure that in this room there's such a the correct veneration of marriage before we can answer those questions. So if you have on your device or in your Bible, if you'll go to Ephesians 5 with me, Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 21 here in a second. This is the maybe the seminal passage on marriage in the Bible. It also quotes that same Genesis passage. So there's something we learn about marriage in that Genesis passage. I'm going to read a lot of it, and we want to talk about it, because we need to know the high calling of marriage, what Tim Keller called the meaning of marriage in his book. We need to know what it is before we can start answering some of those questions. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Ask the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I want to stop there. Verse 21 has this opening line. It's really a bridge to the previous part of the chapter. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in marriage, there is something of a mutual submission, but listen closely, a mutual submission of one's own needs for the other. That you would submit what, what you are wanting to the, to the needs of those, that you, to the one that you love, to the beloved. So the question, is, as you read through this, uh, how on earth can someone do this? How on, how on earth could somebody love as Christ loves the church and the church, how the church reveres Christ? Well, you can only do it out of reverence for Christ. A healthy marriage starts with two people who have reverence for Christ, who are in awe of Christ, and out of that, a healthy marriage can be built. Now, pick up the picture Paul is painting about marriage. He introduces us to this Christ in the church picture, and then he says this thing about the husband is the head, the wife is the body. There again, one flesh. So immediately, just from, what is that, four verses? Here's something we pick up quickly. Marriage is definitely more than the stories you've been told. It's not just your love story, although it is. It's not just your rite of passage, although it is. It's not that which just makes you an adult and a man and a woman. It's, it is all those things. But man, it's Christ in the church. It's one body. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, Here's the Genesis quote again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. That's an understatement. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul goes here to the, at the end here, he quotes Genesis, just like Jesus did. I want to break that down for you in, three, in a, several different ways, but here's what we can learn from all of that passage. We can learn that marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's not just the stories your culture told you, it's something more cosmic. The language here about marriage, that it's Christ in the church, that it's a one flesh Union that you cleave to one another, as the old King James said, or hold fast to each other. We're going to talk about all those. That your marriage is actually a picture of the meta story. The grandest story ever told is Christ winning his church. And so your marriage is your story, but it's something even grander. It's a picture of the grandest story. Marriage pictures the work of the father and the son to mold his bride and to redeem his bride. From the earliest pages of scripture that Christ leans over our body of earth and makes himself a people and breathes life into them. And from our earliest rebellion guaranteeing to us, covenanting with us, prophesying for us, I'm going to win you back. 
that's the grandest story any of us have ever heard, the story of Jesus then coming and buying his bride back through his own blood. The greatest story that unifies us all, your marriage is a picture of that. It's so much more than your self-actualization project. It's so much more than your love story. It's so much more than your rite of passage. It's all of those things, and those things are good. But what we see here in Ephesians, what we see here in Genesis, is your marriage is a picture of the most cosmic and the most glorious story ever told. Three things that a marriage is, three things that a marriage is that we get from these these verses. Number one, marriage is a covenant. Number one, marriage is a covenant. That uh, that language that a, a man would leave his father and mother and then hold fast. I actually like the KJV dad on this one. It's cleave. Yeah, amen to the like in the KJV. Cleave to, to your spouse. This is legal language. It's the language of something public and binding. So it's covenant language that you make a covenant with your spouse. And it, it reflects our God and that our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He makes covenants with Abraham, Noah, David. We'll talk about some of these more in a minute. But it's tying us, tying what you do in marriage to what God does with us. He makes covenants, and in your marriage you make a covenant, not a contract, a covenant. It's very important. Our modern-day Western version of marriage is a contract, not a covenant. It's a bunch of if-then type statements, even if it's not said out loud. It's a lot of, if you, madam, maintain these measurements, then I will um, provide this much money. It's, sir, if you will make me feel these things that I've always wanted to feel, then I will do these things. And if you stop making me feel this way, if you stop looking this way, if you stop providing these things, I'm out. Marriage today is a contract, not biblical marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's declarations. It is saying, whatever you do, whatever may come, I know what I'm going to do. I'm faithful to you. That's what our God does to us. He's covenanting with us. I'm coming after you. Whatever happens, I'm yours and you're mine. Not an if-then, but just a declaration. That's your marriage. When you marry someone, you are solemnly covenant-making. You are picturing to your spouse, to your kids, to your family, to the world around, the covenants God makes with his people. That he's covenant-making and he is covenant-keeping. And as you keep your covenant, you reflect God's nature to those around you. I mentioned that God makes covenants throughout the Bible. He had one with Abraham. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to bring all nations to you. Noah, I'm going to restart humanity with you. He makes a covenant with David. And every week, and through the table of the Lord, we recognize another covenant. We read it every week. This is the new covenant in my blood. We are recognizing every week the price Jesus paid to win his bride back. And, 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 and keeping God's covenant to redeem his people. So your marriage reflects that. Can you see that it's bigger than just your love story? Can you see it's bigger than just your, your rite of passage? You are reflecting God's nature to your spouse, to your kids, to those around you. And so marriage is a covenant. And as we see the covenant of the table of the Lord, it leads us to the next point. Number one, marriage is a covenant. Number two, marriage represents Christ in the church. Marriage represents Christ in the church. Consider value the love Christ has for his church. Came down from glory to live the life we could not live, to die the death we deserve to die. 
He came to win us back, the most important organism, the most important movement in the history of this planet, the bride of Christ. Marriage is then a chance, not just to declare love for one another, but to declare to each other, to declare to the world, to your household, to your kids, to those around you, how God pursues and loves his children. You can reflect Christ in the church and how you love each other. Sir, when there's all kinds of negative talk about the old ball and chain around the office, and you only have kind and good things to say about your wife, you reflect how Christ loves his church. Sir, when you put down the thing that you're doing that is sometimes frivolous to do the thing that your wife has asked you to do 12 times, you reflect to her the sacrifice that Christ gave for his church. Madam, as all the negativity of the internet and interpersonal relationships happen around your, uh, about the men in their lives, and you just have wonderful things to say about your husband, you show to the world the adoration the church has for Christ. When you speak highly of your spouse to your kids, you show your kids how the church venerates Christ. How you honor your spouse in and out of your house is a reflection of Christ in the church, the planet. You are representing the greatest story ever told, the gospel. And you have this incredible opportunity to model the greatest story and how you love your spouse. It's your love story. It's your rite of passage. It's your way to build a life, but it's so much more. It's a covenant, and we reflect God's nature in making and keeping the covenants in our marriages. It's Christ in the church in that it is the how we treat and love each other. We can reflect how Christ won and sacrificed for his bride and how the bride adores her Christ. And maybe the most profound, number one, marriage is a covenant. Number two, marriage represents Christ in the church. The one I learned a lot about in studying for this. Marriage is a one flesh union. Marriage is a one flesh union. It's used twice. I told you that means it's important. And that word flesh, it doesn't actually just mean bone and sinew and skin. There's a part of the scriptures that say, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That word, that word flesh is the same one here. It doesn't mean bodies. It means people. So when Genesis says the two become one flesh, it means the two become one person. That's profound. They become an, a new person altogether. I try to think of a way to illustrate this to you. So I hope this connects. This is the best I could come up with. Throughout my high school years and college years, I made pizzas for a living. That was my thing. And I, I recall making chocolate chip pizzas where you have this cake mix, this batter, as it were, and you have the chocolate chips. And as you mix them together, they're together and they're delicious. They do, they're a very good thing. But they never become one. I can always just take the chocolate chips out. I can always separate them. They're two good things that decided to come together, but they maintained their independence. The chocolate chip is always the chocolate chip, and the cake mix is always the cake mix. But then also, I would make dough. And that was water and oil and salt and sugar and flour. And you put that in this giant mixer, and what came out was not water and oil and sugar and salt anymore. It wasn't flour. If I wanted to get the salt out of that big chunk of dough, I couldn't get it out. If I wanted to get the sugar out of there, the oil or the water, I couldn't do that. It, it, it had become a brand new thing. Your marriage is not cookie dough, where you can pick one of you can leave the other. Your marriage is more pizza dough. 
You become one new thing. You're not two people anymore. You become one flesh. I mentioned earlier, modern marriages do look like that. They're more like business agreements where you bring these assets, I bring this, these assets, I'm living my life, you live, you're living your life, and we're going to live them concurrently in the same house, but we're not truly one flesh. Now, I, I notice, for good reason, there's some modern sensibilities that we look back on how marriage used to be, uh, arranged marriages by the patriarchs of families, and look down on it. That we would have men go to other men and say, let's have a look at her, let's see if she's worth... 10 cows or 50, as what we're going to pay for. And we look back on that, and we look down on it, and all we've really changed is now we just do it ourselves. Instead of having patriarchs make the deal, we just make the deal. We look at what we want, the other side looks at what they want, and we make deals. Again, I'll do this if you do that, but we're going to have our independent lives that will live concurrently, but that's not the biblical view. To become one. There's so much power in recognizing that, that you are not two independent people. You have become one give you just a couple examples of this. There's a lot of power that you have over one another. I want to encourage you to be careful with that power. The secular world in the, in the social sciences and the mental health world, they, they have stumbled upon a very true thing that one of the most important parts of ourselves is our self-talk, what we say to ourselves, what our impression of ourselves is. But when two become one, what your spouse says becomes self-talk. The things your spouse says to you become tr- quite central to who you are. Husbands and wives, will you know that about yourself? You have incredible power. Tim Keller says it this way, that if someone has heard all their lives, you can't achieve it, you can't do the thing you're trying to do, but if a spouse says, I believe in you, you can do that. That spouse can go out into the world in power and strength and forget all those other voices because the one flesh means it's now an internal voice saying, I can do this because that spouse has that much power and equally. If you've heard all your life, you're awesome. You can achieve. You can, you can do this thing that you're trying to do. You can hear another voice. If it's a spouse that says, I don't think you can, you go out into the world, as Tim Keller says, in weakness. You have so much power over each other because you are one flesh. You're speaking self-talk to each other. Be careful. The way you talk to your friends, to your siblings, that won't work anymore. The way you talk to your friends, it might be like you're holding a BB gun. When you're talking to a, uh, to a sibling, maybe you're holding some kind of rifle. When you're talking to each other, you're holding a nuclear weapon. You can blow each other away with the wrong words. You can also build each other up incredibly. When you see those good things, will you say so? I talked about it, Christ in the church picture. When you see your husband actually put down what he was doing and do the thing you wanted, when he sacrificed what he wanted for you wanted, will you say so? Say it out loud. Use the one flesh union to empower that. Sir, will you choose not to criticize and to build up and all those good things you see, you say it out loud? You have no idea the power of this one flesh union that you'll speak into it. I missed something in my notes here. I want to say it because as I venerated a moment ago as Christ in the church, that point, marriage is Christ in the church, that you have the opportunity to show how Christ loves the church and the church venerates Christ in your marriage. Do you know what happens when you don't do that? You are saying to the world, to your kids, to those around you, you're giving a disordered picture of how Christ and the church should love each other. 
Will you be careful about how you talk to each other? How you talk about each other? How you treat each other? You're reflecting the gospel. It's not just your love story. So marriage is a covenant, and we can reflect God's covenant, making and covenant keeping through our marriages. Christ in the church, as we treat each other in our marriages, we shall Christ, Christ in the church love each other. And marriage is a one flesh union. It comes with all kinds of power. Even that one flesh union, one final point on this. Consider the rights that you have to your own flesh. Only you can pick at your wounds. Only you can tend to your scabs or your problems in your own physical flesh. That has not become the case when you are married. You share one flesh now. And that way, you work on each other. When you see a flaw, a mar on one or the other, you work on each other in that way. I know it's uncomfortable, but you have to allow it. You're one flesh now. You're for life one flesh, and you refine each other in that way. I hope I've established for you, marriage is so much more than this culture has sold you. Man, this culture told you it was, it was your fairy tale, and I want it to be. It can be. So much more than that. You reflect covenant-keeping God and a church-winning Christ. You are one new being, a one-flesh union in your marriage. So then those final questions. I, I opened with the, with the concept here. You're going to have some questions about hearing that marriage is one man, one woman, for life, and knowing all the situations in, our, in the room, I would be a coward if not dealing with them. So hold the, some truths in, 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 together here. Again, this is Jesus' teaching. We already decided who he is. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. We submit to him. And two, marriage is a big old deal that represents covenant-keeping God and a church-winning Christ, one flesh union. It's a very big deal. So let's ask some questions. One, for the divorced person who is not remarried, you are divorced, and we would put it in the category of unlawful divorce. You got, married, got divorced for a reason that Scripture does not allow. If reconciliation is possible, pursue it. Pray for it. Pray for the reconciliation of that marriage that you lost. And if it is not possible, I am saying to you, lean on the Lord. Lean on the family of the church. This is what Christ teaches. That marriage is so big. Seek out to reconcile the one you were in. I also want to say, while sermons are not conversations, they are declarations, sermons can be the catalyst for conversations. And these are conversations Doug and I'd love to have. So that's my, that word to those, you, you've been divorced and you, it, it, it fits into that unlawful category. I am giving you what Jesus says here is to pursue fulfilled singleness or to pursue the reconciliation of the marriage you were in. Two, marriages that are a product of divorce, either one or both of you came out of a divorce that you would put into the category that divorce shouldn't have happened biblically. Well, number one thing, stay in your current marriage. Invest in it. Go after the best marriage you could have. Reflect the gospel in your household. Sir, love that woman as Christ loves the church. Madam, love that man. Venerate that man like Christ. As, as, as the church venerates Christ, go after it. But you can do both at the same time. You can recognize, apparently, the teaching of Jesus, this marriage shouldn't have happened. And then embrace the sweet gift God has given you. Embrace the incredible grace God has given you. And live a lifelong commitment to that spouse. 
You can do both at the same time. Single people thinking about marriage. Teenagers, listen to me. Stare marriage in the face for all it is. It is a glorious institution, but it will demand of you giving up some of your independence to become one flesh. Some of you bristle at that, but that's God's command. It's lifelong. It's full commitment. Don't believe the stories of the incomplete stories of this world, that it is just your rite of passage as a man. It's just a way to, to establish that you have become an adult. It's not just your love story. It's all of those things. It can be, but it's so much more. Stare at it in the face. And as you see the glory of it, go after it with eyes wide open. Can I also encourage you? Go after marriage with someone who also sees the glory of it. Go after marriage not with, not with someone unequally yoked. Go after it with someone who is, as we started there in Ephesians 5, uh, the only way to these fulfilled marriages is if two people are in awe of Christ, they, they're in awe of this Jesus, they come together in a marriage, that's a, that is a formula for a happy marriage. For married people in the room, all of them, you're on your first, second, whatever marriage. Would you embrace this incredible gift you've been given? Don't take this for granted. What a good gift. God kept making things in Genesis. He said, it's good. That's good. I made those. Those are good. Those are good. And then he made humanity. He made man. First thing he said wasn't good. It's not good that he's alone. He gave us this gift to be together. Don't take it for granted. Don't assume it doesn't need maintenance. Work on it. Embrace it. Sir, be Christ in the household. Lead, lead sacrificially. Madam, follow respect as the church follows Christ. Final thoughts. It is, according to Ephesians 5.21, only out of reverence for Christ that we can have marriages like this. The sweetest and most fulfilling marriages are designed to point our hearts to our truest relationship. While marriage is so unique because your kids eventually go away. Some of you are like, amen, it's going to happen. So eventually your kids move out, you, they move on, you move out of your parents' house. There's that one relationship that's going to be until you die. That marriage is so unique. And it is pointing us to eventually our truest relationship. That men, that, that your ultimate helper, like, uh, that's the word used, by the way, in Genesis, the, the help meet. Your ultimate helper is Christ. As awesome as a helpmeet, as, as awesome as a helper on earth your wife is, she is pointing you ultimately to look to Christ as your ultimate helper. Ladies, your ultimate husband is Christ. As awesome as your husband is, marriage is this incredible gift to point us to Jesus and point us to the gospel, to our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So out of that reality, I hope we can leave here a people in just a few minutes as people who hold marriage high recognize that our marriages are a picture of the greatest story ever told and go love each other as Christ loves the church and as the church loves Christ. I'm going to pray for us.